So if you will turn with me to the book of the Revelation in chapter 20. I'm going to read the entirety of this chapter, which is one of the most obscure texts. Is one of the most obscure texts in all the Bible, and one of the most obscure books in all the Bible, meaning it's the most one of the most difficult passages to interpret. And the interpretation of this particular passage has caused a great deal of controversy over the centuries. Uh, because all the various millennial views take a different approach to this particular text. So with that in view, I'm going to read Revelation 20, verses 1 through 15. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's open our time in prayer. Our Father, we come before you asking that through the merits of Jesus Christ, your spirit would be poured out upon us with great power, that you would give clarity of thought to us over a subject that can be very, very confusing. So Lord, help me as I teach to take things that are complex and make them simple. And I pray you'll give us understanding and help us, Lord, to never lose focus of the thing that's most important, and that is the future hope we have in Jesus Christ because of the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been about a month since we touched upon this subject of eschatology. Thus far, I've taught three sessions on the subject. We probably have three or four more left after this one. But let's be reminded of where we've been. I started off by talking about last day's madness. And got lots of head nods as I was talking to you, resonating with the fact that it is very confusing to think about all the things about the end times that are taught in the broader evangelical world. But what I tried to set before you 
was that 90% of any theological controversy or subject comes down to knowing what the questions are. And if you know what the questions are, then you can begin to work your way through the answers. But a lot of times we don't even have that. So what we've, we're doing is I'm trying to set this before you under 12 basic questions. And as we seek to answer those questions together, hopefully things get clearer and clearer. Now, we spent our sessions two and three answering just one question. And that first question was this. What fundamental truths about eschatology are non-negotiable if you are to stay within the boundaries of the Orthodox Christian faith? In other words, what things are fundamental? What are things that we cannot agree, we, we cannot agree to disagree on? Because they're absolutely dogma. And we, we considered seven answers to that question. And in considering those seven answers, I tried, sought to show you the biblical basis for saying all those things. But I also tried to show you from the creeds and the historic confessions all throughout the last 2,000 years, these things are reaffirmed over and over and over again. So what are those seven things? First of all, the plenary verbal inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy, and sufficiency of Holy Scripture as given in the original text. That's our authority. Secondly, the intermediate state of all who died before Jesus or before Christ's return. Their bodies sleep in the ground, but their souls are alive and conscious, either experiencing the joys of paradise with God or suffering in hell. The third is the future, literal, invisible second coming of Jesus Christ and the inability of men to know the day and the hour of Christ's return. The fourth is the future bodily resurrection of all who have died. For some, it will be a resurrection unto life, and for others, it will be a resurrection unto condemnation. The fifth is the future judgment of all men before the throne of Jesus Christ. The sixth is the future eternal state of men living body and soul in either heaven or hell for all eternity. And the seventh is the future destruction of this present heaven and earth and the creation of a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, I don't know how you think about these things, but is that not comforting to say, hey, there's some things I can take to the bank and say, absolutely, this is right, this is true. No matter what various school of theology you hold to, these things are true. Hello. Come on in. Make yourself at home. Well, tonight, our focus is going to be on questions 2 and 3 of our questions 2 through 12. Those two questions are these. Question number two is, what are the five different millennial views that are held by Christians who are within the boundaries of fundamental eschatology? And the third question is, which of these five millennial views are inside the boundaries of full subscription to our confession, and which ones are outside of it? Now, let me see if I can illustrate this for you a little bit. I've taken my whiteboard to try to illustrate the point. Let's suppose that you view the fundamentals of eschatology as the seven sides of a heptagon, a seven-sided structure, right? And that inside these boundaries is the Orthodox Christian faith when it comes to the doctrine of the last times. So each one of these things are the seven things I just read off. Outside of that boundary is heresy. Outside of that boundary is theological liberalism, things like soul sleep, annihilationism, universalism, full preterism with its denials of a future second coming of Christ and its denials of a future, uh, you know, a future resurrection and things like that. So inside of these boundaries, there's room, there's latitude for genuine Christians to agree to disagree. In other words, different schools of thought inside those boundaries. We don't want to transgress the boundaries. If you do that, you're heterodox. But inside those boundaries, there's room for disagreement. Does that make sense? 
So that's what we're addressing with our second question. What are the five different millennial views that are held by Christians who are within the boundaries of fundamental eschatology? Then, our church holds to a confession of faith. Our primary authority is the Scriptures, the Bible. Our secondary authority, not on the same par with the Bible, is our confession. Our confession is an authoritative document that basically tells the interpretation, our interpretation of the Scriptures, right? So, is every single view held within Orthodox Christian faith, is every one of those views inside the boundaries of our confession? And the answer would be no. So if I draw a circle on the inside of our heptagon, that's what's inside the boundaries of our confession. And that's what this third question is dealing with. And that third question again is, which of these five millennial views are inside the boundaries of full subscription to our confession? And which ones are outside of it? Does that make sense? Is that clear? Okay, so hopefully by the end of this night, you're not going to know necessarily which millennial view you personally hold to. But hopefully you'll at least know what they are, and you'll know something about where they are inside of those boundaries, okay? So I'm taking a very complicated subject, and I'm trying to make it as clear as I can, okay? Uh, as clear as mud, right? Now, as I do that... Um, we have some more questions to work through, right? Nine remaining questions. Numbers 4 through 12. What I'm going to do as I present each of the five different millennial views is I'm going to show you how each of those views would answer those nine questions. And the notes I sent out to you yesterday by email, there's uh, the last two pages of those notes have those answers for you. And I hope this is going to make sense as we begin to go through them, okay? So, tonight, let's start with our second question. What are the five different millennial views that are held by Christians who are within the boundaries of fundamental eschatology? So, this gets confusing when you start talking about different kinds of views, schools of theology here, okay? Because theologians will generally answer and say to you, there's three basic millennial views, there's premillennialism, and there's amillennialism, and there's postmillennialism. But the reality is, there's two different kinds of premillennialism, and there's two different. There's one known as dispensational premillennialism, the other is known his, as historic premillennialism, and then there's two different kinds of postmillennialism. There's what's known as pietistic postmillennialism, and then there's what's known as theonomic postmillennialism. But then, what is amillennialism? Actually, amillennialism is a third variety of postmillennialism. So what you really have is five views. Two views of premillennialism, three different types of postmillennialism. Adding to the confusion is another thing. Have you ever had a fellow Christian ask you this question? So, are you pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? You ever had somebody ask you that question? And what they mean is, is Jesus going to come before the tribulation? Is he going to come in the middle of the tribulation? Or is he going to come after the tribulation? Well, what makes that particularly confusing is that for the school of thought that I adhere to, that question is meaningless. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib aren't even categories inside of any kind of all-millennial or post-millennial perspective. That is an intramural debate, usually between dispensationalists and them alone. So in other words, you have to be in that particular school of thought for that question even to be relevant. So I'm coming from a completely different school of thought, and so, but most people, most Christians don't have any idea of what that's, 
what you're talking about. So that's how things get confused. But nonetheless, let's look at our five millennial views and try to work through them. And what are they? I've introduced them in our first session together. The first one's dispensational premillennialism. That's the one most of you are familiar with. The second one is historic premillennialism. The third is realized postmillennialism. That's not my term. That's Jay Adams' term, but that's what he calls amillennialism. The fourth is pietistic postmillennialism. And the fifth is theonomic postmillennialism. And my apologies ahead of time. I'm going to say millennial a lot before the night's over. Okay? So let's start with dispensational premillennialism. This is the left-behind mentality. Most, if not all of you, were raised probably hearing about this particular variety, this particular school of thought. What is it that makes a dispensationalist a dispensationalist? It's one simple thing. The dispensationalist believes that there are two distinct peoples of God. Period. That's it. And that leads them to the beliefs that they hold. So, in other words, a dispensationalist believes that there's two peoples of God. Number one, the ethnic Jews are the first people of God. And then the predominantly Gentile church constitutes the second people of God. And according to this belief, when Jesus came to the earth the first time, his intention was to establish an earthly kingdom with him being a visible king in Israel that would reestablish the kingdom of David, but make it even far greater than David's kingdom ever was. But did the Jews accept him as their king? They didn't. They rejected him. In God's wise providence, the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out from heaven on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus' resurrection, 50 days after he had risen from the dead, the so-called church age was inaugurated. Now, follow what I'm saying here. According to the dispensationalists, the church did not exist until the day of Pentecost. That's when the church started, as a second people of God. In other words, Israel has always been God's plan A, but the Israelites rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and so God inaugurated plan B, which is the church age. And plan A is on pause right now. Okay? But at the end of the church age, it's going to come to an end when the majority or many in the church visibly apostatize. And when that happens, Jesus is going to come back in a pre-tribulational stealthy rapture to rapture the church away. And when he raptures the church off the earth, that will be the end of the church age. Plan B comes to an end. So that he can then unpause plan A, the Jews, and go back to that subject and focus upon them. So it's the end of the church age, the rapture is, and it's the beginning of the tribulation. Okay, you follow me so far? What's going on here? But notice what's behind this whole mentality. Two distinct peoples of God. Okay? Um, there is a resurrection that takes place at the rapture. All the saints who died in Christ are resurrected at the rapture. They're taken into heaven where they experience a judgment, the judgment at the Bema Seat of Christ, as it's called, the judgment of the saints. Then you have the seven-year tribulation that takes place. Halfway in, three and a half years in, the Antichrist is revealed. At the end of that tribulation, what happens? The second coming of Christ takes place. This time, 
This coming of Christ is visible. It's seen by every eye. But notice that the, the comings of Christ are divided up into phases. There's the pre-tribulational rapture seven years later. There's the post-trib uh, resurrection or the post-trib second coming of Christ. There's a second resurrection at that time. There is the, a second judgment, the judgment of the nation spoken of in the parable of the sheep and the goats at the end of Matthew 25. And then Jesus inaugurates a thousand-year reign. So are you following this? There's a pre-tribulational rapture. Then there's a second coming of Christ that's post-tribulational, but it's pre-millennial. Jesus returns before the inauguration of the millennium. And finally, in that thousand-year reign, Jesus sets up his earthly reign that had been intended when he came the first time. He sets up a throne in Jerusalem. He rules from Jerusalem. He re-inaugurates the uh, Levitical priesthood and animal sacrifices once again in, the, in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem uh, to commemorate the death of Christ each time another animal is sacrificed. Does anybody have a problem already? Because didn't Jesus abolish all the animal sacrifices? Why would you go back to the inferior priesthood when you have a superior priesthood? But anyway, um, so at the end of that thousand years, understand that during this thousand years, glorified saints are living on the earth alongside of unregenerate lost people. So the world is still here living with a visible Christ, living with visible saints who are shining like the sun, Children continue to be born during that thousand years. People continue, sinners continue to be born again and put their faith in Jesus Christ during the millennium. But at the end, Satan is loosed. He's bound at the beginning of the millennium. At the end, he's loosed for a brief time. He goes and stirs up the unregenerate men and women who are still living on the earth to raise a warfare against Christ, which is defeated. And then finally, this heaven and earth is destroyed. There's a third and final judgment. There's a third and final resurrection of all who've died. And then it ushers in to the new heavens and the new earth. Now, did you follow everything I said? Are you all familiar with all this, right? Okay. But I want you to notice several things. First of all, before we go into talking about how dispensationalists would answer our last nine questions, is anything that I've just said outside the boundaries are seven boundaries of orthodox fundamental eschatology. No. No, it's all inside of there. They believe in a future heaven and earth. They believe in a, in a resurrection. They believe in judgment. They believe in all those things. They're not denying any of the core tenets of the faith. Okay, So they're inside those boundaries. But do you notice something about it? Dispensationalism teaches there are multiple people of God, there are multiple returns of Jesus Christ. There are multiple resurrections and there's multiple judgments. Like two peoples of God, two returns of Christ, three resurrections, three judgments, all that kind of stuff, okay? So let's go through our last, our questions 4 through 12 to answer these questions about secondary eschatology. According to dispensationalists, how many peoples of God are there? Two. Two. There's Israel and there's a church. According to dispensationalists, how many returns of Christ will there be? Two. A pre-tribulational rapture and a post-tribulational second coming. Is the tribulation Jesus speaks of in his Olivet Discourse a past or a future event? It's future. Is Jesus going to return 1,000 years before the last hour of the last day? 
Or is his second coming going to occur on the last hour of the last day of this present age? And the answer is 1,000 years before the last hour of the last day, according to dispensationalists. How many future bodily resurrections will there be? Three. One before the tribulation, one after the tribulation, and one after the millennium. How many future judgments will there be? Three taking place at the same times, all the three resurrections. Will humans continue to be born and to die after Jesus' second coming, according to dispensationalism? The answer is yes. Can men continue to be born again after Jesus' second coming? Yes. And what is the nature of the millennium spoken of in Revelation 20? It is a future event in which Jesus will visibly reign on the earth for a literal thousand years. So, is it, are, y- are y'all tracking with me so far? Is it, okay, good, good. Because I know this gets complicated. I'm trying to make it uncomplicated. Well, but there's a different variety. There's a second variety of pre- premillennialists, isn't there? There's what's known as historic premillennialism. And the fundamental difference between the two, there, there, there's huge differences, but the fundamental difference is this. Unlike dispensationalists, historic premillennialists are covenantal in their theology which means they believe there's only one people of God. Okay? In other words, they would disagree that the church began on the day of Pentecost. They would maintain that the church consists of all God's elect, past, present, and future, whether they're Old Testament saints or New Testament saints. In other words, Israel was the visible church organized as a nation-state under the Old Covenant. And then the day of Pentecost was the inauguration of the church in her new covenant identity, where she's no longer a nation state, and and she has different positive laws governing her, but nonetheless, it's the same church. In other words, the church consists of all the saints, past, present, future. A covenantal theologian would probably argue that the church began in the Garden of Eden. Okay? Because Adam and Eve put their faith in God's promise after they had fallen, their promise that he would send a redeemer. And so the church began, in one sense, in the Garden of Eden that way. Does that make sense? Okay. So historic premillennialists do believe in a future tribulation, but they would reject the notion of a stealthy pre-tribulational rapture. For them, there's only one second coming of Christ, and that takes place at the end of the seven-year tribulation, but before the thousand-year reign of Christ. And Jesus comes to inaugurate, there's a resurrection, there's a first resurrection there when he comes back, a resurrection of all the saints when he returns. He inaugurates a visible kingdom on earth, and children continue to be born, and people continue to die, and there are people who continue to be converted and put their faith in Christ during that thousand-year reign. But the thousand-year reign is not Jesus reinstituting the priesthood. It's not Jesus reinstituting the, uh, the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant. So it's a different in character in that way, but it is nonetheless a reign of Jesus on earth, visibly, for a thousand years. So all forms of premillennialism teach that the last thousand years of human history is the last era, the last golden era, if you will, of, of uh, human history before the eternal state. But at the end of it all, there'll be a second resurrection, this of those who are, who have lost, who are lost. There'll be a second judgment. Or there'll be a general judgment, actually. One, one judgment of the saints and of the lost at the end of the millennium. And then God will usher in the new heaven and new earth. So there's similarities, but it's a significantly different teaching than what the dispensationalists give, correct? You, you follow that? So, going through our list again. First of all, is historic premillennialism inside the boundaries of fundamental eschatology? 
Yes, they are, right? So these are Orthodox brothers. If we go through our list again, then we have to ask this question. According to uh, historic pre-mills, how many peoples of God are there? One. How many returns of Christ will there be? One. Is the tribulation Jesus speaks of in the Olivet Discourse a past or a future event? Future. Is Jesus going to return 1,000 years before the last hour of the last day or on the last hour of the last day? They would say 1,000 years before the last hour of the last day. According to uh, historic pre-mills, how many bodily resurrections are there? There's two. One at the beginning of the millennium, the second one at the end of the millennium. Then how many future judgments will there be? Only one that will take place at the end of the millennium. Will humans continue to be born and die after Christ's second coming? Yes. Can men continue to be born again after Jesus comes a second time? Yes, according to uh, historic pre-mill. And what's the nature of the millennium spoken of in Revelation 20? It's a future event in which Jesus will visibly reign on the earth for a literal thousand years. Now you guys are smart. You following all this? Is, is this making sense? Some head nods or something? Show me your weight. Okay, good. <laughs> Very good. All right. Let's move on then to our next, our, our next group, which is three different kinds of postmillennialism. Realized postmillennialism, which is also known as amillennialism. Usually amillennialism is the term. The term amillennialism, anyone know what it means? No millennium. That's why amillennialists usually don't like it. Because technically that's not what is meant by the term. They do mean... We mean, because I'm one of them. Um, we mean that we don't believe in a literal millennium. We don't believe in a literal thousand years. Okay, um, That's why the late Dr. J. Adams, who was himself an amillennialist, described it as realized postmillennialism. So what is an amillennialist belief? Amillennialists are covenant theologians. They believe then that there's only one people of God. Right? In fact, the only people who believe there's more than one people of God are dispensationalists. Nobody else believes that. Nobody else has ever believed that throughout all of church history. But when Amillennialists look at Revelation 20, they see parallelism between Revelation 20 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because you remember what happens at the beginning of the millennium? Satan is bound. What happens at the end? He's, he's loose for a brief time, right? So let me read to you from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12. to 12. Now, I'm not going to do a detailed exposition of this text, but I want to give you just a sense, a flavor of, of where Amelinus are coming from. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. So, so Paul's addressing the subject of the second coming of Christ, right? And, and the fact that the church is going to be gathered to Him when He comes. We ask you not to soon be shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So remember Hymenius and Philetus were going around saying the resurrection was already passed, the day of God had already come and gone. Apparently that was troubling the church in Thessalonica. So Paul's writing to reassure them, no, you haven't missed the Lord's return. Okay, you can't miss it. You can't be lost from it. I mean, it's, it's, you're going to see it. But he tells them, he says, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless two things happen first. The falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, 
who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. Now, did you hear that language? The man of sin, the Antichrist, is going to show up. But right now, something is restraining. And then he says this, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in this present age. But something is restraining it. But then there will come a time when it is loosed, that restraint is taken off, and then the Antichrist will be revealed. Just before Jesus comes back. And when Jesus comes back, he'll destroy him with the brightness of his coming. All millennialists see this as a parallelism between the language of Revelation 20, which speaks of Satan being bound, and Satan being loose just before the end, the end time. So here's the thing. Here's what Amelinos teaches. Now, at first you're going to think this is crazy, but hear me out. Amelinos believe that right now Satan is bound. That Satan was defeated when Jesus died upon the cross. Now you're thinking to yourself, okay, Pastor, you have looked around at the culture, right? You know what's going on in the world. How can you say Satan is bound when there's so much evil around us? But... William Hendrickson, who was, he's with the Lord as well, but he was an amillennialist. He gave an analogy that was so very helpful. What if you have a rabid pit bull and it's harming everybody that's in its way, but you drive a big metal stake into the ground and you put that pit bull, that rabid pit bull, on a 50-foot length of chain. It can do great damage to anything within that circumference of its chain, but it's limited, it's restrained so it can't do more damage than it, could, than it would if it was loosed. Well, what happens if you suddenly set it loose? How much damage can it do then? A whole lot. And that was William Hendrickson's analogy of what does it mean that Satan's restrained? He's restrained in this sense so that the gospel can be preached among all nations in this present age. That's the idea. So the millennium for an amillennialist is not a literal thousand-year period. It's the entire era between Christ's ascension and the time just before his return, when Satan is loose, the Antichrist is revealed, whom Jesus then destroys with the brightness of his coming. So in other words, the loosing of Satan at the end of the age is basically allowing Satan and his, and his people, the world, to persecute the church without mercy. Just before Jesus comes back. But Jesus brings it to an end by his second coming. So that's what an amillennialist believes. So let's go back to our questions. First of all, are all millennialists denying any of the fundamental tenets of fundamental eschatology? Do they believe them? They do. So they're not theological liberals. Just because somebody's post-millennial and all, you know, all liberals are post-millennial, therefore all post-millennialists are liberal, that's not how this works. No, 
you know, all Jehovah's Witnesses are premillennialists. Does that mean that all premillennialists are Jehovah's Witnesses? Of course not. That would be an unfair caricature. That's not logical. Even so, not every postmillennialist is outside the boundaries of the Orthodox Christian faith. So, for the amillennialists, let's go through our questions again. How many peoples of God would the amillennialists say there are? One. How many returns of Christ will there be? Is the tribulation that Jesus speaks of in his all of the discourse a past or a future event? They would say past. They would say that's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There is a tribulation or a future, a tribulation in the sense of persecution under the Antichrist. But there was, a, there was also a, a tribulation in our past. And that, and that what Jesus is speaking of in the Olivet Discourse is actually this past event. Okay? Is Jesus going to return 1,000 years before the last hour of the last day or on the last hour of the last day? The last hour of the last day. How many future bodily resurrections will there be? One. When Jesus comes again, all who are in the grave will hear his voice and will arise, some to a resurrection of life, others to a resurrection of condemnation. How many future judgments will there be? One. Will humans continue to be born and die after Jesus' second coming? No. Can men continue to be born again after Jesus' return? No. Now everything I've just told you, all forms of postmillennialists share all those things in common. Now, I'm showing my bias here. But isn't that so simple? <laughs> isn't that wonderfully simple? It really is, and I believe more consistent with what the Bible teaches. And then the final thing is, and this is where the various forms of postmillennialism differ, is on this last question. What is the nature of the millennium spoken of in Revelation 20? It's a present event consisting of the entire period between the ascension of Christ and a short time just before Jesus' second coming. So it covers that entire era when Satan is bound so that the missionary enterprise can take place. So that's all millennialism. Still with me? Mm-hmm. All right. Now I hope you're going away. Hey, I can do this. I, I, I can wrap my mind around this. I'm not stupid. You're, you're, you're not stupid. You guys are smart. You can handle this. The fourth view is pietistic postmillennialism. If an amillennialist believes we're already living in this millennial reign, as it were, then the last two forms of postmillennialism believe that's still a future event. And Jesus will return after what what both the pietistic and the theonomic postmillennialists believe is that there's going to be a future great revival. A revival that's going to go through all nations. And basically, we're going to live in a Christianized world for, for a long period of time. That is, that it's not that every person will be a Christian, but that, by and large, the nations of the world will be turning to Christ. The bigger massive revival that, re, that results in an era of peace, in an era of Christ triumphing, not in a visible reign, but through his church and through his people. Okay? And then at the end of that time, Satan will be loosed. There'll be a time of you know, persecution and the rise of the Antichrist. But then Jesus will return and make all things new. Okay. So, but the difference between the pietistic and the theonomic postmillennialist is how that revival will be brought about. That's the difference. Um, for the pietistic postmillennialist, they say there's going to be one central reason for that revival. What do you think it is? 
the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel will succeed. And that preaching of the gospel will transform society by transforming individual hearts. That, that's what's being said. So the basis of this view is rooted in Romans 11, verses 25 to 33. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. You hear that? So all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have been now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Now, the person I know, know of the, the best who holds this viewpoint is my, one of my favorite authors of all time, Ian Murray. His book, The Puritan Hope, sets forth this view. Now, I disagree with his view, but you can still read that book with profit to your soul, even if you don't hold to his particular school of eschatology. Um, but here's the idea. In Romans 11, if you remember, Paul sets forth the picture that the Gentile nations are like these wild olive trees, uncultivated and out there. And all the branches on those trees are the individual citizens of those nations. But God had one tree that he chose, one nation he chose, and he cultivated that tree. Which nation was that? Israel. And all the individual branches are the citizens of Israel, the ethnic Jews. Did all those Jews believe on their Messiah? No, the majority did not. And so they're like dead branches who never bear fruit. And what does God do with those dead branches? He cuts them off. But there's other branches, like Paul himself and the apostles, men who were Jews, the Jerusalem church, uh, so many thousands of, of Jews who believed in Christ, who did bear fruit because, through faith in Jesus. But then Paul uses the analogy that he took branches from the Gentile nations and grafted them into what? Into Israel, into their blessings, right? Contrary to nature, he put them in there. Now, right there, stop and think about it. That right there just proves dispensationalism, doesn't it? Because in dispensationalism, God let the cultivated olive tree of Israel kind of go to root, kind of roost on itself, and he picks a second olive tree, the church, and builds it. But Paul depicts believing Gentiles being grafted into the spiritual blessings promised to Israel. And what Paul is saying here, his logic is that when the Jews who are unbelieving see the Gentiles receiving their blessings through faith in Christ, it provokes them to a godly kind of jealousy to make them say, hey, I want to believe in my Messiah too. And then when they are grafted in through, through faith in Jesus, that brings even greater blessings to the Gentiles. And this is the basis for the pietistic postmillennialists saying that there's going to be a future in mass revival of the Jews that leads to a golden era of peace that may last a little thousand years or may last for just many, many generations. They, they don't necessarily insist upon a thousand years. But in other words, for a long period of time, basically. Now, here's the thing that you should know. There are all millennialists who agree that there's going to be a future revival among the Jews, even though they don't believe in the great golden era of peace. Now, if you want to ask me the question, what do you believe about this, Pastor Jerry, since you're an all-millennialist? 
I will tell you, I have read so many different treatments by so many different Reformed brothers on this subject. And uh, there is no wise old man. They all disagree with each other. I'm going to tell you the most profound thing I can tell you about Romans 11. Here's my answer. I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes that's the most profound thing a pastor can say. But let me say this as a second answer. I hope so. Is that fair? I hope so. I hope there will be a revival. I want more people to be added to the kingdom before Jesus comes back. Okay, so let's put it that way. But that's the understanding of what the pietistic postmillennialist believes. This was the view of Jonathan Edwards. This was the view, apparently, of William Carey and some of his friends. Um, so this is a view that's been held throughout history by different brothers. Now, let's ask the question, are pietistic postmillennialists inside the boundaries of fundamental eschatology? Yes, they are. Are they liberals? No. No, they're not liberals. They're Bible-believing Christians who love the Lord, love his gospel, right? So don't look at a postmillennialist and say, well, he's a liberal because he's a postmillennialist, just because there are liberals who hold to a different form of postmillennialism. So going through our questions one more time, according to a pietistic postmillennialist, how many peoples of God are there? One. How many returns of Christ will there be? One. Is the tribulation Jesus speaks of in his all of discourse a past or a future event? It's past. Usually they're partial preterists, just like the all millennialists. Uh, is Jesus going to return 1,000 years before the last hour of the last day or on the last hour of the last day? Yes. How many future bodily resurrections will there be? One. How many future judgments will there be? One. Will humans continue to be born and die after Jesus' second coming? No. Will, will people still be able to be born again after Jesus' second coming? No. But here's the difference. What is the nature of the millennium spoken of in Revelation 20? It's a future event in which, through the preaching of the gospel, a massive revival will result in a mostly Christianized world, the effects of which will last for many generations. So again, is this, is this coming clear? We've got one more. One more, see? You've made it. Theonomic postmillennialism. Um, this particular one is similar to the one I just told you, but there are significant differences. Okay, particularly on how this revival is brought about. This particular position was most clearly articulated by a man named R.J. Rush Dooney. Rush Dooney lived from the years 1916 to the year 2001. His most famous work was a three-volume work called The Institutes of Biblical Law. His view of theonomy, or sometimes it's called Christian Reconstructionism, has been popularized through men such as Gary DeMar, Gary North, uh, Greg Bonson, Douglas Wilson, Doug Phillips, more recently by Baptists such as James White and Jeff Durbin. They have all advocated these kind of things. Theonomic postmillennialists are covenantal. They believe there's only one people of God. And like the pietistic postmillennialists, they believe there's going to be a massive worldwide revival in future years that lasts for many generations. But the way it's going to be brought about is very, very different in the theonomic scheme of things. Um, Our confession of faith in chapter 19 has a chapter called of the law of God. And it sets forth what I've called the triplex view of the law of Moses. That the law of Moses can be understood as moral, ceremonial, and civil laws. Or moral, ceremonial, and judicial laws, as the confession calls it. What are moral laws? Ten Ten commandments. They're timeless, right? 
They're binding upon all peoples of all times and all places. So no matter what covenant administration you're under, they're timeless. These are the same laws written upon the heart of believers in the new covenant, but they're written in stone, tables of stone in the old covenant, right? Ceremonial laws are circumcision, kosher diets, kosher days, the Levitical priesthood, animal sacrifices, all that stuff, uh, annual feast days and, and that kind of thing. Those are ceremonial laws. Are you obligated to live by the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament? No. Why not? It is finished. Yeah, it's finished. They've been fulfilled. They've been fulfilled. What makes a positive... Positive commands. Thank you. That's it. A positive command is a temporary command that's only in place so long as a specific covenant is in force. But once that covenant is abolished, that positive law no longer exists. So here's a question. Are there positive laws under the new covenant? Baptism and the Lord's Supper are positive laws. You know, Abraham wasn't baptized. Abraham was circumcised, right? But under the new covenant, you have baptism and you have the Lord's Supper. Whereas you have a lot of uh, ceremonies connected to the ceremonial law. And then you have the civil law. The civil law were laws that were given uh, to Israel organized as a nation state. So example, Israel had the authority to exercise capital punishment. Does the local church in the New Testament have that authority? We do not. That is given to the civil government. That is not given to the church. We have the authority of church discipline, but we do not have the authority of uh, corporate punishment. In other words, I can't spank your kids. You get to spank your kids, right? Um, but, but also, we don't have the authority of capital punishment. Are the civil laws of the Old Testament still binding? Our confession would absolutely say no. Chapter 19, paragraph 4 says this, To them also he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people. Not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. So the civil laws has perished. Theonomists disagree with that statement. They would disagree with our confessions uh, statement that basically the law of Moses can be stood as a triplexity. They would say it's a duplexity. It's a duplexity. They would agree with us the ceremonial law has been done away with. But then they would say that the moral and the civil law are one and the same. Civil law is still binding under the new covenant. And so their perspective is that basically by Christians using their influence in government to convince the government to reinstate civil law. Through that and the preaching of the gospel, we will bring in a Christianized world. So their view of the church is that the church isn't simply to preach the gospel, make disciples, plant churches, and, can, and repeat and continue doing that. That's not the fulfillment of the Great Commission. It's that plus being socially active, trying to transform culture, trying to be a political force. That's what the church is for. And the question is, is that what the church is for? It is not. When you look at how the apostles obeyed the, the Great Commission, did the, were they political activists? Were they trying to transform culture? Well, in the sense that they're trying to transform people one heart at a time by calling the faith in Christ, yes. You know, as someone has said, peace comes to streets when Christ comes to hearts. A lot of truth in that. Did they preach the gospel to kings and to magistrates when they had the opportunity to do so? Yes, they did. 
Of course they did. Should we be concerned about the poor? Should we be concerned about righteous legislation? Absolutely we should. Of course. We pray for it constantly in our church, don't we? Every Lord's Day. We pray for the Lord to end abortion on the state level. We pray for Him to bring to an end same-sex marriages. We pray for our civil magistrates that God will save those who do not know Him to give them new hearts. These are things we're supposed to do. And can individual Christians be involved in like crisis pregnancy centers or be involved politically and be politically active on their own? Of course they can. But is that why Jesus gave the church? No, that's not the function of the local church. So our understanding was we we live in a paradigm of two kingdoms. There's a secular kingdom and there's the kingdom of God. And our focus is upon the kingdom of God, even though we live in the kingdom of men. Um, There's some books that might be helpful for this. I want to go ahead and recommend them to you if you're curious about it. One excellent book I read back in November is What is the Mission of the Church? by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. It is a phenomenal work. As a matter of fact, if I had read this a year ago, I would have included it on the curriculum for the Great Commission class. Uh, Next time I teach a Great Commission class, this will be required reading. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, they're, they're saying we are to be concerned for the poor. We are to be concerned with injustices in our culture. But the primary job of the church is to preach the gospel and to plant churches. Another one is David Hesselgrave, who's become one of my favorite missiologists, a book called Paradigms in Conflict. Because there, the, this kind of think, thinking affects the missiological world. There's what is known as holistic missiology versus prioritistic missiology. Prioritistic means our priority is the souls of men and the preaching of the gospel. And, of course, he, he, he says, yep, I'm a prioritist, in essence. But his fourth chapter deals with that. One other one was recommended by Pastor Nathan White. I haven't read it myself. One of my sons read it and really liked it. It's called Living in God's Two Kingdoms. The subtitle is A Biblical Vision for Christianity and Culture by David Van Drunen, which uh, comes very highly recommended. So it's on my wish list. I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to take Pastor Nathan's word that it's really, really good. Um, but I don't want to portray, portray a stereotype here. But when you're listening to theonomists, I'm not saying they don't believe the gospel. But very often, their emphasis is not the gospel. Their emphasis is upon social action, political action, and things like that. Um, anybody know, familiar with the term American Vision? American Vision was founded by Gary DeMar. It was a parachurch group. Their headquarters was literally a mile behind my house in Powder Springs. And I used to go when they were there and look at their bookstore. And I'm being honest with you. You'd be hard-pressed to have found a book that would give you a satisfying answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Because the gospel wasn't the emphasis. Now, they did sell Ian Murray's Puritan Hope because it was post-millennial, right? But not their kind of post-millennial. But the emphasis was always on social action political activism and things like that rather than the preaching of the gospel. And again, I'm not trying to speak in terms that stereotype people, but that's just tends to be where that group tends to be. They tend to be much a more militant group. Um, I actually read a blog by Gary North who, who uh, died not long ago. But Gary North, who was a theonomist, made a comment to the effect of when Christians take over the state, what we can do is renounce everyone's citizenship and then, only require, and then only those who are baptized into the church can be citizens. So there's kind of a drawing together of church and state almost into one entity there. 
You hear, you hear what, what that's going on there. And when you're around people like this, it's, it's kind of the, the, the lingo that you're picking up on. It's kind of the vibe. Now, are theonomic postmillennialists inside the boundaries of the seven fundamentals? Generally speaking, yes, they are. Although there are some who embrace full preterism and go outside the boundaries of, of the Orthodox Christian faith, Gary DeMar, unfortunately, has been one of them. Um, some of his friends, like Doug Wilson and um, uh, Ken Gentry and guys like that who've worked alongside of him, sent him a private letter, asked twice, they sent it twice and got no response. Said, some of the things that you've said recently have concerned us. Can you answer these three questions for us with a yes or no? Do you believe that there is a future second coming of Christ? Do you believe there will be a bodily resurrection of all who've died? And do you believe there's a future new heaven and new earth, a literal physical heaven and earth that will be made? And he's refused to come out and say that he affirms those things. And I'm not really surprised just based on some of the things that I used to see in his bookstore. Um, so pray for this man. I'm, you know, that the Lord will open his eyes and help him to see the truth. But among generally theonomic postmillennialists, most of them are in the, inside the boundaries of the Orthodox faith. So how many peoples of God would they say there are? There's one. How many returns of Christ will there be? Just one. Is the tribulation Jesus speaks of in his all the discourse a past or a future event? They would say it's a past event. Is Jesus going to return 1,000 years before the last hour of the last day, or is his second coming going to occur on the last hour of the last day of this present age? They would say the last hour of the last day. How many future bodily resurrections will there be? One. How many future judgments will there be? One. Will humans continue to be born and die after Jesus' second coming? No. Can men continue to be born again after Jesus' second coming? No. Then what is the nature of the millennium spoken of in Revelation 20? It's a future event in which through the preaching of the gospel and the restoration of the civil law of the Old Testament, a massive revival will result in a mostly Christianized world, the effects of which will last for many generations. In theonomic postmillennialism, Church and state are brought closer together, almost becoming one and the same. They're not one and the same, but almost. So we've sought to answer the question, what are the five different millennial views that are held by Christians within the boundaries of fundamental eschatology? I know this has been tedious, but I hope it's been helpful. And I hope it's clarifying some things. Let me briefly touch upon our third question. Which of these five millennial views are inside the boundaries of full subscription to our confession and which ones are outside of it. Remember our, remember our chart here, our, our picture. We have inside the boundaries of the Orthodox Christian faith, true brothers, but then our confession, not every single view would be held within there. Here's the short answer. Three of these five views you can hold to within the boundaries of full subscription to the confession. It's the second, the third, and the fourth one. That is, first of all, historic premillennialism is within the boundaries of our confession. Okay, It's kind of rare in, in this age, day and age, but it, it does exist. Um, according to Dr. Jim Renahan, of course the term historic premillennialism did not exist in the 17th century. But basically, the men who many of the men who signed our confession in the year 1689 were held to something that would now be called uh, historic premillennialism. Did you know that Charles Spurgeon was a historic premillennialist? Did he, and he held our confession. Uh, my homiletics professor in Bible college was a man named Dr. Richard Belcher. He subscribed to our confession. He was a historic premillennialist. 
I have a friend who until recently served as a pastor of a confessional Baptist church. Unfortunately, they had to close their doors about a year ago. But um, I actually ran my questions by him to make sure I was representing historic premillennialism accurately. And he is a confessional Baptist. I'm not going to mention his name because he's moving more and more towards an amillennialist position, uh, thanks to my friend John Miller, uh, who's kind of influencing in that way. But nonetheless, he is within the boundaries of confessional uh, uh, confessional boundaries and holds to a historic pre-mill position. Well, then what about realized post-millennialism? That is, amillennialism. The truth is, the majority of confessional Baptist pastors I know hold to amillennialism. And that's, there's a lot of uh, confessional Presbyterians who hold that view as well. In fact, that's the position of my friend, Pastor David Hall, a Midway Presbyterian. Uh, I believe that's the view of Pastor David Gilbert, Grace Presbyterian in Douglasville. I know he's not a theonomist. Um, pietistic postmillennialism. I don't see anything that pushes that outside the boundaries of our confession. Now, I will tell you, I don't personally know of a confessional Baptist pastor who holds the pietistic postmillennialism. That doesn't mean they don't exist. I don't know everybody. But it wouldn't surprise me if I did run into some brothers who did. It is claimed that William Carey and many of his fellow Baptists who held pretty much to our confession uh, would have held this way in the 18th century. So you understand what I'm saying here. I've told you, I put my cards on the table, I'm a millennialist. I'm a partial preterist, or I'm a real conservative partial preterist. I call myself a partial, partial preterist. Okay, because I'm the most conservative partial preterist you'll ever meet. But would I lay hands on a brother to install him as an elder or a deacon or a gift or, or you know, set forward a man as a candidate to be a gifted brother who held the historic premillennialism or who held to pietistic postmillennialism? I would have no problems doing that because it's within the boundaries of our confession. Okay? Okay. What's outside the boundaries of our confession? Dispensationalism is outside the boundaries of our confession. You cannot be a dispensationalist and fully subscribe to our confession. Our confession, whatever else it is, is a covenantal document. So much so, in fact, if you take the covenantalism away from our, doc- from our confession, you have no confession left. Because over and over again, the confession repeats that motif of the, histori- the uh, pacum salutis and the historia salutis and the ordo salutis. That is, redemption appointed, redemption accomplished, redemption applied, the heart and soul of covenant theology. Over and over again throughout the paragraphs and through the chapter arrangements, it gives that. Uh, there was a man who, who was, received monies from one of our associations of churches who was a national pastor in another place, claimed he, he fully subscribed to the confession. Meanwhile, he was a dispensationalist. Now, it's not a sin to be a dispensationalist, but it is a sin to lie about your, your confessional subscription and allegiances when you know you hold to something contrary to it. So that's why it's an issue. Then it becomes sin, right? Then it becomes a matter of integrity. And then regarding theonomy. Do you think theonomy is inside or outside the boundaries of our confession? It is outside the boundaries of our confession. What that means is we would not lay hands on a man to make him an elder or deacon or promote him as a gifted brother who was a dispensationalist or held to theonomic postmillennialism. We don't regard these brothers as outside the boundaries of the faith, but we do recognize them as outside the boundaries of our confession of faith. Is that clear? So, just a little bit more, and then then I'm going to open the floor for comments and questions. 
Our theological convictions as a local church and as an association are that we fully subscribe to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1677 and 1689. We have a document in our church called the Doctrine and Distinctives of Berean Baptist Church that clarifies what we mean by confessional subscription. And the very last statement it has there is on eschatology. I'm sure, I know you've all read it, but let me read it out loud to you because it's going to just summarize everything I just told you tonight. Okay? So it says this, Chapters 31 and 32 of our confession are an excellent summary of the doctrine of last things to which we fully subscribe. Because of the complexity of modern eschatological beliefs, however, it is important to clearly define what is permissible within the boundaries of our confessional commitments and what is excluded. So then there's letter A, fundamental eschatology. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ shall literally, personally, and visibly return to, at some unspecified time in the future to judge the living and the dead, and that we are to be ever watchful for his return. We believe in the conscious intermediate state of the souls of the dead in either heaven or hell while they await the resurrection of their bodies. We believe in the future bodily resurrection of all who have died, some to a resurrection of life and others to a resurrection of condemnation. At the judgment seat of Christ, those whose names are found in the Lamb's book of life shall enter into his rest and enjoy him forever. Those whose names are not found in the Lamb's book of life shall be cast body and soul into the lake of fire where they will suffer conscious torment and separation from God for all of eternity. We believe that the present heaven and earth will be destroyed with fire and that a new heaven and a new earth will be created in, his, in, in which righteousness dwells. These affirmations exclude the heretical doctrines of universalism, annihilation, soul sleep, and all forms of full preterism. We believe these affirmations and denials represent the boundaries of the Orthodox Christian faith and are therefore binding upon all members of our church. Can I ask for a good old-fashioned congregational amen? <laughs> okay. Secondary eschatology. We affirm that historic premillennialism, amillennialism, pietistic postmillennialism, Futurism, historicism, and partial preterism, those are different views of the book of the Revelation, if you don't know, are all within the boundaries of confessional subscription. Therefore, the officers of our church may adhere to any of these various theological schools of thought while fully subscribing to the confession. Strict subscription to our confession excludes, however, any and all forms of dispensational premillennialism or theonomic postmillennialism. We do not denounce dispensationalism nor theonomy as heretical departures from the faith, but as erroneous doctrines that are contrary to our confession. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Now, we've covered a lot of ground. But understand that if you're a member of our church and we're spreading dispensationalism or new covenant theology or theonomy among our membership, what is that? That's being divisive. That's sowing discord. You recognize and respect the boundaries that our church has set forth. Okay, um, Does it mean that a dispensationalist can't be a member of our church? They could be. I don't know why they would join because they're going to be really, really miserable by what they're hearing from the pulpit. They're not going to like it when I preach on the second coming of Christ. But can they technically join as long as they make their peace and agree to not sow discord over their, over their beliefs? Yes, they could. Could a theonomist technically join our church and be a member as long as he did not spread his theonomy among our congregation. Yes. My experience is theonomists have a hard time not spreading and talking about what they, about their, their particular group. But the reason I mention this is many of our churches in our association are having this trouble right now. Theonomy has become a big thing. 
and there are young men spreading this stuff among congregations and pastors are having to deal with it. As a matter of fact, that question was raised on our fraternal floor just a few weeks ago. How are you dealing with the subject of theonomy? And for those young men who are doing this, I don't know that any, none of them are here in our church that I'm aware of, but in our sister churches, if they're listening to this, what you're doing is sinful. What you're doing is wrong. You need to be quiet. You need to submit yourself to your pastors. Don't sow discord among God's people. And be teachable and humble. George Whitfield rebuked a young man one time and said, Son, speak little, think and pray much. That's good advice for a lot of young men. So be humble and be teachable. So 